0: Gospel of John, chapter 12, but I'll begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 12. Hear God's Word. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see? that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would cause us to glory in our Savior this morning, and that he would be ever more beautiful to us as we walk through this passage of your word together. Send your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds... And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me say up front that I had a difficult time this week pulling everything together into one coherent uh, piece, but I'm hoping that the hodgepodge of a sermon I do have will help you see the blessedness of Jesus Christ. The entire thrust of this passage is meant to move our hearts to declare of Jesus, Blessed is he who comes. ...in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So I have six observations to share with you to that end. And then after those six observations, I have six points of application... ...that stem from us beholding Jesus and all His blessedness. So hang on to your seats. We've got a lot to cover. Number one. As Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem from Bethany, remember that Jesus is the one who gives life to the dead. You know, sometimes we have a hard time holding the story together as we keep reading in John's Gospel. But John wants us to keep this in mind. Jesus is the one who gives life to dead people. On both sides of the event of Jesus entering Jerusalem, John reminds us that Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. We see it in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then again in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead... Continued to bear witness. It's as if John is saying, hey folks, you need to remember this about Jesus when you read about his entry into Jerusalem. I don't want you to miss the connection that the one who gives life is the one who is also Israel's king. Those two things come together for us between chapters 11 and 12. Jesus gives life and Jesus is Israel's king, which is precisely the aim of John's entire life. Gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31 says this, These things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is another title, another name for Israel's King or their Messiah. These things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, that Jesus is king and that he gives life are one. You must embrace his kingship if you want his life. Jesus can't be welcomed into your life as whatever you want to make of him, you must welcome him into your life on the Bible's terms. And the Bible makes him out to be the king of Israel. Not just, and, and we'll see, not just the king of Israel, but also king of the world. We'll see more of that in a minute. Number two, notice the irrationality of unbelief in the Jewish authorities. The irrationality of unbelief in the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities despise the fact that Jesus gave Lazarus life and that Lazarus is still alive to confirm the miracle. Verses 11 and 19 expose their frustration over everybody in Jerusalem making such a big deal about Jesus raising this dead man named Lazarus. And then verse 10 tells us that such a loss of their own people's allegiance, everybody's crossing over to Jesus, now pushes them to want Lazarus dead as well. They start making plans to bump Lazarus off. They don't like how his life bears witness to Jesus' glory. And that's always the case with unbelief. Unbelief hates anything that brings Jesus' glory. But this is where we see how irrational unbelief is in a world where Jesus raises the dead and in a world where Jesus is truly glorious. The chief priests make plans to put ...to death a man, Jesus, already raised from the dead. It's like they hold death in their hands... ...as if it's some great threat to Jesus. The ultimate threat they hold against Jesus and against Lazarus is death... ...and Jesus has just publicly proven death has no hold over him... ...or over anybody else that he chooses to raise. The most rational choice in a world where Jesus raises the dead, is to admit He's the Lord of life. And if Jesus has again and again and again proven that He is truly glorious by things like raising the dead and healing the sick and restoring the blind and feeding the multitudes, then the most rational choice in that world is to cast off the shackles of pride that stiff arms the reality that Jesus is glorious ...and bend the knee to Jesus. Not to admit that Jesus is glorious... ...is to live in denial of reality. In this world, which the Bible faithfully represents... ...Jesus raises the dead... ...and Jesus is truly glorious. So we shouldn't waste our life... ...like these religious authorities... ...pretending that we have any real power... ...and living contrary to what's really true... The truth is that Jesus has all power, even over death itself. He is himself life, and he is glorious, and he demands our total adoration. Number three, look at how Jesus accepts the crowd's praise that he is Israel's king. He accepts the crowd's praise that he is Israel's king. Verse 12 "...the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, "...Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." That's basically a quotation from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And the picture we get there in Psalm 118 we covered this last Thanksgiving, is one of Israel's anointed king representing God's people in prayer and then fighting on behalf of God's people to deliver them from their distress. In fact, this king is one who's even willing to lay down his own life in battle to see his people singing in God's presence. The psalmist says that this king was like the stone the builders rejected but which has become the cornerstone. In other words, the Lord actually ordains this king's sufferings and his rejection to establish his work in rescuing his people. And the work is so complete. This king's work is is so total that the king even returns from battle with great victory over God's enemies and brings brings all the people he represents in battle right through the gates of righteousness into the very presence of God. And in this great celebratory procession up to the temple mount, all the people are called to bless God's chosen king with these words. Hosianna, which means save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This crowd coming out to meet Jesus with palm branches in hand... ...are using the words of Psalm 118 to bless Jesus. Now, they don't understand everything about Jesus. We know they're really excited about Him raising Lazarus from the dead... ...but that's about the extent of their faith. They're amazed by His miracles... ...but they still don't really understand the full nature of His mission. And John will point that out later in verse 37... But still, their excitement over Jesus builds to the point that they seem ready to welcome him as their king. Even using a blessing known to the people from Psalm 118 to welcome him. And watch what Jesus does. Verse 14. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written... "...fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." That's a quotation from Zechariah 9.9... ...where God promises to send Israel a king... ...much like the king that's mentioned in Psalm 118... "...who will deliver them from their enemies, but is willing to lay down his own life to secure that victory." When he comes to save them, this king will come as a humble king riding on a donkey as opposed to a great war horse with his chariot. By sitting and riding into town on a donkey, Jesus is not saying that his legs are tired. Jesus is deliberately identifying Himself with what the Scriptures have spoken about the expected humble King of Israel. Now, Jesus' response to this crowd of Jews is very different from the way Jesus responded before, isn't it? Remember in chapter 6, verse 15, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, John says that Jesus perceived that the people were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, but He didn't let them. He didn't let them. He withdrew into the wilderness by Himself on a mountain. Why the different response here? Here the people come out to meet Him with palm branches and praises, and Jesus gets on the donkey and rides right into Jerusalem. Why the different response by Jesus? There He withdraws to a mountain, and yet here He accepts their praise. The different responses by Jesus to the crowd is is based on the closeness of his death. In chapter 6, his death was still far away, and so he rejected their desire to make him king. In chapter 12, his death is near. It's only days away. And so he accepts their praises to make him king. And the point in both places, in chapter 6 and chapter 12, is this. Jesus is not the sort of king that saves the world through pomp and pageantry and imperial force, which is what the crowd wants when they bless him. He's the sort of king that saves the world as a humble servant, willing to lay down his life for the rebels fighting against his kingdom. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's telling us that his crown remains intact. Even when going to the cross. He doesn't need anybody to make him king. He is heaven's rightful king already. It's just that now we get an even fuller picture of the kind of king he is. He willingly goes to the cross to win God's promises for God's people just as it was laid out in the Old Testament. That brings me to the fourth observation. Zechariah reveals several promises associated with the coming of God's humble king. Several promises here in Zechariah 9 are associated with the coming of God's humble king. And all of these promises are bound up with what Zechariah himself calls salvation. Let me read to you Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." And here we go with the promises. First promise, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Second promise, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river of the from the river to the ends of the earth. Third promise, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's another way of talking about freedom from captivity in Babylon through a new and greater exodus. So, peace finally brought to the nations, universal rule established over the earth, and prisoners freed by the blood of the covenant. Those three promises are associated with the coming of God's humble king. So when Jesus sits on the donkey and rides into Jerusalem, he's doing even more than simply saying, hey, I'm Israel's king. He's also revealing how he intends to use his kingship to bring these promises to pass. How he plans to use his authority and exercise His power to fulfill these promises for God's people and for the world. Which brings us to number five. Jesus wins these promises for God's people and for the world by first enduring the cross. He wins these promises for God's people and for the world by first enduring the cross. God promised peace for the nations. And the New Testament is replete with passages speaking to Jesus, securing such peace first through His cross. He will come again to establish peace by forcing all His enemies that remain to submit to Him, even if it's against their will. He will do that one day. But he first comes as a humble king to win peace for his own people by securing everything necessary to conquer their hearts, to overcome their rebellion, to forgive their sins and make them right with God, and to give them life that only his kingdom knows, a life of peace both peace with God and peace with other men and women. Even after he rises from the dead, some of the first words he speaks to his disciples are, Peace be with you. Jesus can give peace to his disciples with his life, because he secured peace through his death. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.20 that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you want peace with God? No more guilt and shame and fear tormenting your soul because of your sin. You will find such peace in Jesus Christ, the King of Israel. Because of what He accomplished on the cross. God promised also to give His humble King universal rule over the earth. And this universal rule we're to- over the earth, we're told, comes to Jesus as a result of what He achieves on the cross. Not only does he die to ransom men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation by dying for their sins, God also gives Jesus universal rule over all peoples after he does so, and he gives that rule to him as a man risen from the dead, the first man, the first fruits of the resurrection. Hebrews 1.4 even puts it this way, that after He made, after, after He made purification for sins, that He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Only after making purification for sins did He sit down at the right hand of God's majesty on high as a man, the God-man. This is also why the book of Revelation never loses sight of, of Jesus' wounds as He reigns over the world. The reigning lion is always the Lamb who is slain in the book of Revelation. His wounds forever stand as a reminder of how God conquers, of how God would bring about His universal rule through Jesus' cross. And God also promised that prisoners would be freed because of the blood of his covenant. And here we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem to spill that very blood on behalf of multitudes held captive by their own sin. We can't lose sight of that. I mean this Jesus remember is the Passover lamb, right? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That lamb's now riding into Jerusalem to spill his blood and release the captives. We took the Lord's Supper last week and celebrated the new covenant in Jesus' blood which He poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Jews simply want freedom from their political oppressors when they're shouting these words. But Jesus came to give them more freedom than that. He came to free His people from bondage to sin. This is the sort of king Jesus is. He gives us the deliverance we truly need not to the deliverance we think we need. The deliverance we truly need is the freedom from the power and the consequences of sin. Before He comes as King to judge the world, He comes as King to rescue the world from sin through His own death. Jesus' kingship is one of unspeakable humility. The king of all kings rides to his death in the place of countless rebels. That's the picture we're getting here. Final observation before we get into application. Please see that the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus so that you don't miss Jesus. Please see that the Holy Spirit, right now, as we're reading these words is bearing witness to Jesus so that you do not miss Jesus. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So everything we've said about this, up to this point, about Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 118, fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9, even the disciples didn't understand these things when they were happening. They heard what the people were saying. They saw Jesus get on the donkey. But they didn't understand their true meaning as they were happening. It's not as if everybody knows that Jesus has to die according to God's plan in the Bible. And so they're all just playing along. Right? Yay! Hosanna! You know... We all know this is part of God's plan. We know you have to die. It'll be all right, Jesus. God's going to raise you from the dead. They're not thinking that way. They're totally ignorant. And yet they're participating in it just as God said they would. It's like what Peter tells the Jews in his own sermon in Acts 3. He tells them, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers... But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Meaning, he thus fulfilled through all of your ignorant acts. And then he says, repent. So they don't know what's going on as things are happening. And if that's the case, then how do we know what God was doing in these events? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Something happened to the disciples' understanding once Jesus was glorified, and we've already been told one place. Already been told in one place. What it is that helps them know the truth. Go with me to chapter 7, verse 38 and 39. Chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, "...whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified." So once Jesus is glorified through the cross and resurrection, we're told the Spirit would be given to those who believe in Him. Go with me now to John chapter 14 and listen to what Jesus says the Spirit will do once He dies, rises from the dead, and sins." The Spirit. Chapter 14. Look at verse 26. But the, help, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and get this, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How did they remember? They remembered... All that I have said to you, because the Holy Spirit himself comes. Then chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Jesus tells them there, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, you've seen everything that's taken place. When I ascend into heaven, I'm sending the Spirit, and He's going to teach you all that that was about. He's going to take the Old Testament, use it, and give you understanding to everything that I'm about. The words that we're reading about Jesus today in this book are not merely the words of a man named John. They are the words of the Holy Spirit Himself bearing witness to Jesus. God speaks here. The Spirit taught John the meaning of these events and they're here in this book for you to believe and for you to stake your life on them. The Spirit gave John clarity about what he witnessed so that none of us missed the truth about Jesus. The Spirit had John interpret Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in light of Zechariah 9.9 so that we would see who He really is. He is the humble King who came to save countless rebels by giving His life for them. So when we say Hosanna as Christians... We don't say Hosanna from ignorance. We say Hosanna from hearts full of divine revelation and illumination given by the Holy Spirit Himself. (laughs) So the first application now is this Bend your knee to Jesus, the King of Israel. Bend your knee to Jesus, the King of Israel. Give Him all adoration. If you are to know eternal life, which is to experience the forgiveness of your sins and fellowship with God Himself, then you must receive Jesus as this King of Israel. Zechariah also promises a second coming of this King, And John does as well in the book of Revelation. But that day will not look anything like the day we just read about. On that day, heaven will open. And Jesus will come on a white horse. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His robe is dipped in blood from the enemies he tramples under his feet. And he will strike down the nations with the word of his mouth. Zechariah says this the, their flesh will rot while they are standing, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Everyone will hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and to hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Spirit inspired these words about Jesus' first coming in humility so that you would not have to endure the wrath of His second coming in glory. His first coming in humility was to rescue you from the day of wrath. He rode into Jerusalem as a man to suffer under God's wrath in your place on the cross so that you would not have to experience God's wrath ever by faith in Him. But that's only true for you if you receive Jesus as King and adore Him with your life. Confess from the depth of your being. This morning, blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. He is blessed if He rescues us from that day. And you will have eternal life and escape His eternal wrath. The second application is this. Jesus' coming should drive away our fears. That is, our fears, if we are, if we are His people, Jesus' coming should drive away our fears. If we're not His people, we have much to fear. But if we are His people, Jesus' coming should drive away our fears. Look how John quotes Ze- Zechariah 9.9 in 9 verse 15. He says, "Fear." not daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is another name for God's people in the Old Testament. Fear not, behold, your king is coming. In Zechariah 9.9, 9, the people are actually commanded to rejoice. If you go back and read your Old Testament, you're going to find that. It, says, it actually says rejoice and shout aloud over the coming of God's king because by his coming the people would not merely be delivered from their enemies but even more delivered from the hand of God's judgment which sent, their en- which sent their enemies against them to begin with. There's good news attached to the coming of this king in Zechariah 9. John just picks up the other side of rejoicing true rejoicing comes from a heart that no longer has to fear God's judgment but actually gets to experience God's protection and God's blessing and God's comforting presence through God's humble King Zechariah 9 even mentions that when this king comes, the Lord of hosts will protect his people. He will even save them and gather them as a shepherd cares for his flock. Hello, good shepherd in John 10, Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of the shepherd in John 10 when he rides into Jerusalem in John 12. Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the good shepherd king to take away God's wrath from God's people, to win them all the protection that they need under His blood, and then to comfort them with God's very presence. Church, we overcome fear by knowing that Jesus reigns among us. We overcome fear by knowing that Jesus reigns ...among us and for us. He was reigning for us when He rode into Jerusalem to die for our sins... ...and He's reigning for us now to ensure that God's wrath is forever removed from us. He even reigns to protect us. Even if we meet our greatest enemy in this life, which is death itself... He reigns to bring us immediately into the presence of God and reigns also to give us a new body at the resurrection of life. We don't have to fear any dangers if Jesus is our King. We gain all we need for acceptance with God by His coming, for protection by God through His kingship, for fellowship with God by His presence with us, Satan can threaten us with darkness and despair. The world might hold death over our heads, but none of it can compete with the security we gain through the care of our King, Jesus. And that frees us to love God with all our might and to love others as we have been loved, even if they mock us or imprison us or put a gun to our head. So fear not, church of God. Your king has come, died, and rose again to secure you for God. Fear not God's wrath anymore if you are trusting Jesus. This king has died to remove it from you forever. Fear not whether this world and all its turmoil will do you in. God's king has already triumphed. Fear not the devil's threats God's king already smashed the dragon's head, took the power of death from his hands, and will finish him off in the lake of fire. God, the God of peace, Paul says, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Third application. If this is what God's king looks like, humble willingly laying His life down for others, what ought the citizens of His kingdom to look like? If this is how the King has loved us, coming to the world in humility, willingly laying His life down for our eternal good, then how should we love others as citizens of His kingdom? If His rule is characterized by humbly serving others and humbly giving Himself for others, then it's incumbent on His citizens, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells, to do likewise. That doesn't mean we imitate the King's sacrificial death for sin, only He can bear that cross, but it does mean we imitate the King's sacrificial love for others. Jesus will tell his disciples later, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And Peter, the apostle, even makes that the sacrificial nature of that love even more explicit in his first letter when he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If we truly follow Jesus as our king, if his humble lordship rules us, then we will interact with each other and the world in ways that reflect our Lord's humility, his gentleness, his compassion towards sinners. If we are parents, Jesus' humility must saturate our interaction and our dealings with our children. I'm thankful for the many mothers the Lord has given this congregation that model that for us. That give us that example of humble parenting. Even when it's only the Lord that sees your labors day in and day out. Thankful. If we are a part of, part of a congregation like this one. That has many children that need care on Sunday mornings and in care group meetings. Then we should not overlook the opportunities to serve them when they come up such as with dig and nursery and other forms of child care. Having the humility of Jesus means we jump at the opportunity to serve the least of these and never view ourselves as too high above them, too high to teach them. I'm also thankful for the example many of you set in this respect this past year. Today's our last day was our last day of dig. I'm thankful for the humility you model for us when you take on these responsibilities for the eternal well-being of our children. If we have neighbors in need, and all of us do if we're asking, then we will look for opportunities to serve them in the name of Jesus, even if they decide to reject our care or mock us for following Jesus in the process. Our business practices should also emulate Jesus as we humbly look for ways to serve the well-being of our co-workers, even if it is going and getting them a cup of water between break. And even if they cheat us a time or two. When we engage the lost world around us, our attitudes and demeanor and tone of voice should be shaped by the humility and compassion that we find in Jesus Himself. That doesn't mean we jettison truth or that we're never called to be firm and bold with the gospel we proclaim, but it does mean we won't simply be trying to win arguments. Shame the other party. Gloat over the wicked for their ignorance. They must see our tears. They must see and observe our service, accompanying the truth we speak about Jesus. We must spend our lives for each other and others in our community in humble, sacrificial ways, just as our King spent Himself for us. That also means, and here's application number four, Christianity does not advance the gospel by taking the lives of others. Christianity does not advance the gospel by taking the lives of others. Jesus says in John 18, verse 36, so this is the king speaking, and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. In an age of increasing terrorism, where there is a growing pattern of religious martyrdom like suicidal bombings in the name of radical Islam, we must keep looking to how our king desires us to respond. And it is not with violence and vengeance as a church. While church history sadly proves otherwise... Christians should not take life to advance the gospel, but offer life in the gospel while laying down our own lives if they want to take it. When the world continues to dish out hatred, lies, and violence, and it's coming, it's coming, we, just like our King, respond with love, truth, And self-sacrifice. So prepare yourself by looking at your king. Number five. Men and boys. I think we see an excellent picture of manhood in this scene with Jesus as the humble king. And I don't think that's a stretch in application. Because Jesus was called the bridegroom in chapter 3. And the bridegroom of chapter 3 is the one riding into town on a donkey to lay his life down. Our culture normally associates manliness with the power to get what you want when you want it at the expense of others. They equate strength with domination. But that's not what we observe in Jesus who bore God's image perfectly and always did what was pleasing to God as a man. We see in Jesus what every man was created to be like and what does he do in this scene? He is the king of the world and yet he stoops to serve the world. He doesn't assert his power at the expense of others. He uses his power to serve and to save others. He doesn't exercise his authority as king to take from others. He exercises his authority as king to give to others what they truly need. Remember this the next time that you are tempted, men, to establish your authority in the household by force or with a raised voice or by dominating the situation. Or the next time you're tempted to assert your power at the expense of somebody else. Look to how your king loved you, that you might be with him and look like him. And then humble yourself to serve as he humbled himself to serve. True manliness revolves not around boasting your best game or flaunting your riches or dominating others. Rather, it revolves around how much you reflect the character of the king of kings himself. And even more could be said to you men who are fairly passive in your leadership of the home and your wife and in your relationship with other brothers in this congregation. There is nothing passive about King Jesus. He came from heaven. He went to the cross He took the initiative to save others and to welcome His bride back to Himself, to win her. Men, let's make it our prayer to look more and more like Jesus. We should repent, men, everywhere we do not look like Him. And we should make it our longing to be like Him More and more and more and more. If you don't desire to be like Jesus, you need to be saved. Repent and come to Jesus, and God will forgive all of your sins. He will wipe your slate clean, and then He will put His Spirit in you and conform you to the image of His Son. And ladies... Keep looking to Jesus even when we fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Last word of application. We should pray with great confidence for Jesus' kingdom to prosper. We should pray with great confidence for Jesus' kingdom to prosper. Great confidence for prayer comes from a passage like this one because in it we see God's king on his way to accomplish everything that needs to take place to bring his kingdom about. Whether that's peace for the nations or his universal rule over the new creation or the setting of prisoners free through his blood, all of these things Jesus is in the midst of accomplishing them for God as we read here in John 12. And we further know that He not only went to the cross as King, but God also vindicated Him as King as a way to tell us that what He began with His ride into Jerusalem, He will bring it to completion. God vindicated Him as King on the third day when He rose again. And therefore, we should pray based on what our King accomplished in His first coming until we see God bring it in full at His second coming. We should pray between the resurrection and the second coming. We should pray that what God began, He will bring to completion. We should pray for the kingdom of God to advance among our neighbors and our coworkers. We should pray that God sets them free from their sins through the same blood that set us free from our sins. Namely, the blood of Jesus. We should pray that God would bring His peace to all peoples through the gospel. And we should pray that He would soon split the skies to come and deliver us once and for all. To that end, I'd like to pray now. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us great confidence in prayer from day to day. That even though we don't see the end yet, we do see him who died and is now risen and seated at your right hand. And we know that he will not fail. He didn't fail us going to the cross. And he will not fail us in bringing his kingdom in its fullness. I pray that until then you would give us confidence to trust him and then conform us to him and what he is like and make us heralds to declare to all, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.